Well, like I said, let's get after it. A meaty portion of text today. I'm praying that it will overwhelm us in the right sense. And it will require that you think with me. And as Paul told Timothy, he said, and the Lord give you understanding. So there is this sense of which we bring what we can mentally to the table. And then we also know the Holy Spirit gives us understanding. So will you this morning commit to thinking with me and then asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate your mind and heart? If you say so, would you say amen? Amen. Because thinking is not a trivial issue. Your mindset matters. In Solomon, the wisest man to have ever lived said, this is Proverbs 23, 7, as a man calculates in his heart, so is he. And so let's be clear that thinking isn't a trivial issue. And this morning, I want us to think rightly and deeply and biblically about suffering And I'm using suffering there to be tantamount to God's will. I want us to think about living for the will of God, which I think I could show you in Peter's letter that's equivalent to suffering. That doesn't mean other things aren't the will of God, but Peter sees suffering for righteousness' sake as the will of God. So I want us to think about that this morning by bringing you part one of two messages. I'll be bringing you one message over the next two weeks from the first six verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. So take your Bible, would you? Locate that section of this first epistle of Peter, chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. And let us read what God would say to us through Peter, who was inspired by the Holy Spirit regarding living for the will of God. This is our aim today, to think rightly about that. Here's verses 1 to 6. Follow along with me as I read. You'll see these same themes of thinking and God's will and suffering all surfacing, and we'll put them all together and, Lord willing, serve them up for a delicious meal for us to devour this morning. Verse 1, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh... Arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and so they malign you. Insert, i.e., they persecute you for righteousness' sake. Go back to verses 17 and 18 of chapter 3. It's the same theme. We'll continue in verse 5. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. 
Six verses that will occupy our attention for the next two weeks. And can, let's, let's just say this on the, at the outset. This passage has some great clarity, and it does produce a number of questions, such as what does it mean to cease from sin? And what's this about the gospel preached being preached to those who are dead? Like, those are just honest questions. We'll cover them and answer them as we get to them. But there's also great clarity here, isn't there? That, that suffering comes from, uh, our suffering comes from seeing Christ's suffering and thinking rightly about it. And, and so let's just kind of understand first off the bat what Peter cannot mean in these six verses. He can't mean this. He can't mean that suffering on its own without being christ focused, God-directed, if it's not for greater purposes, just left to itself, suffering just existing in a vacuum, so to speak, he's not saying that that item produces some kind of sinless perfection. He's not advocating for some type of uh, asceticism where if you'll just suffer, who knows why and how, but just kind of take the hard road all the time and you'll end up in some you know, state of nirvana, like where you won't feel anything. Like that's not what Peter is saying. And you may get that small impression by this idea of like, you know, if you just continue to suffer, you'll cease to sin. Peter can't be saying that if you'll just embrace hard things for the sake of hard things, just kind of put yourself through the grind that eventually you'll just kind of be a better person. And in fact, if you'll just let this lead to death, that when you die, it's the ultimate place of of, of no sin, like, that's not what he's saying, okay? He's not promoting asceticism. Here's why, because of the simple phrase in verse two that he says that we're to live for the rest of the time for the will of God. You see that? So he's not promoting some kind of like unintended, like look to suffer so that you can die and experience some kind of spiritual nirvana. That's not what he's saying. Here's what he must mean though. And I'll give you this larger truth up front that we'll kind of, attach ourselves to for the next two weeks, what I think is being said in these six verses. He is saying this, that Christ's suffering, it leads to a whole new mindset that's required for our suffering. You catch this, right? He roots his words in verses one through six on this phrase in verse one, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, and then he begins to talk about arming ourselves, equipping ourselves, living in certain ways, thinking the right way. All of this is rooted in Christ's suffering. So it's not just that suffering exists in a vacuum and, and we find some kind of great pleasure in, in, in uh, you know, suffering without knowing what's going on. No, it's our suffering and the willingness to endure being persecuted for righteousness' sake is actually tied to Christ's suffering because Christ's suffering actually shows us how to think about our suffering. And by the way, in this text, I think I can show you this pretty strongly. In this text, in Peter's mind, suffering is equivalent to living for the will of God. This is really the, the hard and uh, whole truth from these six verses. That there is a right way to think about suffering that comes from Christ's suffering. And when we think rightly about suffering, 
will live rightly in regards to it, and that actually is living for the will of God. Now, when we ask ourselves this question, well, what is this mindset we're to have? What is this, in the words of the text, what is this way of thinking that we're to have about how Christ suffered? Therein lies the meat of the next two weeks. I think what Peter does is he gives us three ingredients to this mindset about suffering or to this way of thinking that's rooted in Christ's suffering, which will help us suffer well, which is, i.e., equal to, tantamount, equivalent to the will, living for the will of God. Three ingredients. I want to cover one this week. I'll cover two next week. The first ingredient to this mindset, this way of thinking, which with which we're to arm ourselves, is there must be a willingness to die to self. In fact, will you say the three words on the screen with me? Dying to self. Easier said, which you just did, than done. And the church said, amen, right? But I think from verses one and two, I can show you and I will, that this is what's in Peter's head, that there must be a willingness to die to self in order to live to the will of God. This is just the first ingredient of the mindset that we must have if we're going to suffer well. So to do that, let's go to our lab, can we? I want to show you in the scriptures exactly how we arrive at this first element of dying to self as the first ingredient in this way of thinking that's rooted in Christ's suffering. Look what he says. He says, since therefore, meaning looking backwards, I think he's looking back to 318, we can call it 317 and 18, in which he said that often it is the will of God that you suffer. And verse 18 says, for Christ also suffered. So he's in the continuing thought of Christ's suffering. That's why he says next, since Christ suffered in the flesh. Now notice what he says here. Based on what Christ experienced, and by the way, this idea of Christ's suffering would include his arrest, betrayal, um, uh, mock trial, uh, the torture, the crucifixion, his death. That's often called the, the sufferings of Christ. It's all of this included. Since Christ did this in bodily form, since Christ suffered for us, notice what he says next. We're to arm ourselves. There is the imperative verb of the entire six verses, by the way. And it's in the middle voice. So this is something that we are to do to ourselves in light of what we know and see and know and believe and understand about Christ. We're to equip ourselves. The idea is here to furnish, to give yourself. You're to arm yourself. has somewhat of a, a militant, combative tone. Wouldn't you agree? It's not necessarily meant that, but I think it's, um, it, it's appropriate in light of the battle that we're in with Satan. He says we're to arm ourselves, we're to furnish, we're to equip ourselves with the same way of thinking. So, so someone has had a way of thinking prior to this, and we're to adopt that. We're to mirror that. It's Christ's way of thinking in his suffering. Notice the repetitive phrase here. The word for means he's going to give us more explanation. Whoever has suffered in the flesh. You notice that? It's identical to this phrase here. But in the first usage, he's speaking of Christ's suffering, isn't he? In the second usage, he's speaking of whoever 
which would be his readers, which would be you and me. And he says that whoever suffered in the flesh, and then here's the troublesome phrase in the first section, has ceased from sin. What, what's going on with that? Now, the implication, first of all, is that when Christ suffered, um, and I want to say this appropriately because I want to explain the word so you'll know I'm not heretical in this. The sense is that Christ did not sin in his suffering. So as you adopt and embrace his way of thinking about suffering, you won't sin either. That's kind of the sense of the text. So what does he mean by cease to sin? He doesn't mean that you'll never sin again or that you stop sinning forever. It just means that in that moment, watch this now, it's very simple actually. In the moment when you cannot change or control the injustice, the persecution, the mistreatment, and instead you say yes to God's will in that and no to your sinful wants, you don't try to detour the situation. You don't try to divert it or subvert it. You simply realize, I'm going to endure this for righteousness' sake. You trust the Lord, not yourself. You say yes to God's will, no to your sinful wants. And in that moment, you don't sin. That's all he's saying. You, you don't take a selfish route out of suffering. You simply endure it because it is God's will. You can't change it or control it. And so watch these words again. We've been in these same words for multiple weeks. You take a posture of humble submission to that which you can't change or control. It is unjust. It's, it's unfair. It's mistreatment. It's persecution. It's malignment. That word's used in this text. All those things are true. There's no way to say this is right. And yet you can't change it, control it. And so you endure it. Peter says in 3.18, often that's God's will. And so we must suffer and endure that well, as opposed to in the moment we want to try to get out of that and squirm our way free, detour it through sinful actions. Peter says, don't sin to get out of suffering. Instead, surrender in it. And when you do, here's the beauty of this text. When you do, you live for the rest of the time, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He doesn't mean like for time and eternity, you never sin again. He's saying from that point forward, you're adopting a stance in which God's will is more important than your way. And so you're living for God's will, not your human passions, where there's lust, not your own desires. This is not that hard if you think about it. When in the moment you're tempted by your sinful passions and lust to divert what is really an opportunity to be in God's will and showcase a humble posture and suffer for righteousness sakes, when you instead say, I'll just humbly submit and trust the Lord with this, I can't change it or control it, it's going to happen. And when you submit to that and trust the Lord, you actually are no longer living for your desires and passions, you're living for God's will. We often love to talk about God's will in times of success, victory. There are multiple things that are God's will. We won't delve into that now. But in Peter's mind, it is as much God's will to suffer for righteousness' sake. And when we do, we don't sin by trying to get out of it by following our own temptations, desires, and fleshly lusts. That's why... 
Dying to self is such a critical part of this whole new mindset because you have to say no to internal, lustful, selfish things that will creep up in the moment of endurance and suffering in which you'll want to try to get out of it in some way possible. And Peter's saying in those moments when they're maligning you, when you're suffering for righteousness sake, we could use several phrases in this from this letter. He's saying, when there's nothing you can do, endure it. You're living for God's will. It's counterintuitively refreshing to hear a man say, when you can't fix it, trust that God will be faithful in it. Isn't it? Would you agree with me? There's some things in life you just can't fix. This brings great solace to my soul that I am as much in God's will living for him when things may be going terribly and I'm suffering for righteousness sakes than if I'm on a mountaintop experiencing great external victories. Now, this is why I draw the first element. This is how I draw the first element of dying to self uh, as being the, the first ingredient in this new mindset because he talks about Christ's suffering and not sinning in those moments, instead submitting to God's will and then saying that's how we should arm ourselves with that same kind of thinking and to resist our passions that are sinful and tempting and instead to trust the Lord and live for his will. So there's, a, there's, there's, a, there's, there's three kind of summary words. We must die to self. Now, I'm laying that before you. I'm contending with you that that really is what Peter's aim is in these first two verses. This is the first ingredient of this whole new way of thinking, this mindset that we're to arm ourselves with. But I realize that as a listener, me thinking, well, Todd, is that just your opinion? Is that just words you thought of? This is a concept that you made up and you're kind of throwing it on us? Well, I'm glad you're wondering that. Let me bring you some biblical support, further scriptural confirmation that this idea of dying to self is not a novel idea to me or first family. It's also in scripture in other places. So let me see if I can add to the evidence this morning. And this will just be more weight to what I hope is happening. We're overwhelmed with the text. All right? So prepare yourself. <laughs> This will get heavier as we progress, but I think it's good for us. There are two examples of this very concept, two people who lived it and taught it. Jesus taught and lived this, and we should not be surprised at that since Peter refers to that, right? Since Christ suffered, the idea of the, the word therefore meaning we're going to mirror that, we're going to adopt that, embrace that. And by the way, this idea of, of Christ modeling this and teaching this, it just shows us that really this passage in 1 Peter 4 is just a, another opportunity for Peter to call us to suffer like Christ. He did this in 2.21, the key verse of the book. He's doing it again now. Peter's kind of repeating himself. I've told you before, he's a master of repetition. You're thinking probably, yeah, we are, you are too, Tom. We're like eight weeks and they have humble submission. Like, can we move on, please, right? But this is what Peter continually goes to. And he continually goes to Christ as the example and model. And so here's where he taught this. He taught his disciples in John 12 that if a seed falls into the ground and 
doesn't die, it remains alone. Do you see that? He's speaking here to his disciples, and if you read the context, he's actually referring to his death. This is a symbolic uh, prophecy or a metaphorical uh, teaching about why it was necessary that he die. So you should read the whole context. But he's simply saying here that if a seed goes into the ground but doesn't die, nothing comes from it. But if it dies, say the last four words with me, it bears much fruit. So church, hear this. Greater life depends upon an initial death. That's true in redemptive history, it's true physically. Christ died to bring life to all who would believe. It's also just true spiritually. That if you want to see more of God's will done in your life, then you need to die to your own selfish wants. In other words, the seeds of all your lusts and passions need to die so that God's will can be birthed and experienced. This is the point. Dying to self. It's not a new concept. Jesus taught it and Jesus lived it. Matthew 26. Listen to his prayer in the garden. What may be one of the moments in the life of Christ that we get an incredible amount of of, uh, in-depth look into the hypostatic union. Now, I just kind of threw a $10 word at you. But the hypostatic union is a doctrine in which we believe two natures in one person. Christ was both divine and human. They were in one person. This verse gives us a little insight. It's just like a, it's like a peek into the, the, the cavernous. Um, it's, it's like a peek in like, I don't even understand this, how this works. This is, this is a verse that shows you that. I'm even tongue-tied right now trying to explain it. But he said, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, Jesus never sinned in his suffering. Here he is in the garden before his betrayal, arrest, torture, and crucifixion, and subsequent death. But he's under great anguish. We know he's under great temptation. He told the disciples who were praying with him to watch and pray that you don't enter into temptation. So there's, there's this is a severe trial in the garden. And somewhere in the humanity of Jesus, somehow he's asking, he's asking the father, is there a way around the cup of your wrath? I don't quite know what he means by that. But somewhere in his humanity, he's expressing an incredible amount of, of like, um, like, you know, uh, is there another option? Again, we're just getting a peek into the humanity of Jesus that he could feel and experience this emotion and never sin. In the middle of that, we see and hear his divinity, not as I will, but as you will. And in this moment, in every reverent and right way, we can say this, Jesus died to every single luring and lustful temptation that was coming at him. And he entered into suffering that was sinless as the perfect lamb of God. But do not think for a moment that because he was sinless in his suffering and was our perfect sacrifice, that it was easy. This verse gives you a peek into the great difficulty. And can I say even human trauma that the sufferings of Christ entailed. Somewhere 
the perfect son of God, was asking the father, is there another way? He knew what was ahead. And yet he was willing to say, my will is not the most important. That is a dying to self that should help us think correctly. But he wasn't the only one. Paul also taught this and lived this. I've been struck by Paul's incredible countercultural honesty. In 1 Corinthians 15, he says to those believers in this chapter on the resurrection, he actually says to them that in his mind, he dies every day. I like the way the King James translates it. Uh, it says, I die daily. Same point. It's easier to say, quicker. Kind of like efficiency. Now, you may say, well, Todd, that's just Paul with three words trying to encourage folks to not try to get their way and to be submissive and, you know, to say no to what they want. Okay, admittedly true, but we under, um, we under preach this when we only spiritualize. I think if you read the context, you'll hear Paul saying that he fought with beasts at Ephesus. Now, was he being symbolic about rulers? Maybe. But what if he actually meant that he's had encounters with wild animals. We know he was shipwrecked. Uh, he was beaten to the inch of his life. He was left for dead. I mean, we know Paul had incredible amounts of suffering. So what if he actually meant he encountered wild animals? And when he said, listen, uh, every day I just consider myself as one, as one who's willing to die for the sake of the mission. He knew from his encounter with Christ in the early parts of Acts that suffering was a major part of his mission. Jesus said to him, I have called you to suffer many things for my name's sake. And you see, as Acts plays out, that's what occurred. And so Paul here is saying, watch this. He's saying to these Corinthian believers, because of the resurrection and the confidence that because Christ arose, I will also rise, that I go into every day for the sake of the mission, putting God's will first, willing to die every day. I think he actually physically was okay, like if today's the day I go home to Jesus, I'm okay with that. Because God's will matters most and because the resurrection is sure, this body will rise. I mean, it, Paul is actually saying here, he just counts his life as on the line every day. It's an amazing phrase. It's, it's, an, it's a window into a man who was dying to self every day. Like his way guarding, protecting, trying to get what he wanted was not really front and center in his mind. What was? God's will, getting the, getting the gospel to those who'd never heard. That was Paul's personal ambition to preach where, where there was not yet been a foundation laid. And so he was willing to put his life on the line. And that's why he said this, I die every day. In his mind, he was willing to calculate the risk and think, God's will matters more than my way, so I'll put my life there every day. It's just a strikingly countercultural, not only then, but now as what we find in our culture is everyone doing all they can to save their life. It's just, it's just remarkable. But Paul didn't just teach this. He lived this in a very specific way in Acts 20. Now, I want you to notice this phrase again, so countercultural. It's it, 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 uh, I've been stewing over this inwardly for a number of weeks. I love this phrase, and I don't understand it, and I can't even say this probably personally yet. This is so um, incredibly remarkable. He said that he does not account, here's what Paul said, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. 
Like that alone should stop us in our tracks. I doubt if very, very few of us probably think that way. The closer you are to death, you probably do think that way. I know some folks who have said that and they're at the doorstep. But a lot of 30s and 40s and 50s who are still feeling pretty good and have a lot of goals, they don't think this way. Paul said, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I've received from the Lord. So he's saying this, that his life is only valuable and precious to the extent that it accomplishes God's will. Now hear me, church, listen very carefully. Paul is not in this situation undermining the value of life. He's not saying that image bearers created by God don't matter. Don't let someone twist these words to make you think that Paul is somehow, uh, you know, boarding the train of life doesn't matter. He's not saying that. It's is a way for Luke, who's the author of Acts, to record for us what Paul said, which is using a device here of comparison. That's all he's doing. Say, when I look at what really matters, my way or God's way, then suddenly my way is very insignificant. When I look at what really counts in eternity, living my life for me or living and possibly dying and giving my life for God, then suddenly trying to protect my life and keep my life and do what I want to do matters very little. It's of no value. What's of great value is God's will and expending my life to that. Does that make sense? That's what's happening. That's why Paul could say to these elders in Ephesus, he doesn't count his life of any value. They had warned him if he goes to Jerusalem, he's going to encounter great suffering, many trials, and thinking perhaps that he would say, okay, maybe I should second guess this. Maybe I should rethink. And he says, guys, God's will is what matters. So my life, it's not of the so much value that I should try to protect it. God's will is of inestimable value. Let's pursue that. Do, do, are you following me? Is this not just shaking you up a bit? This is how people lived out and verbalized the idea of dying to self. And it should cause you to quake in your shoes a bit when you realize that this kind of language is foreign for sure to the American culture, but I would say it's often too foreign to the American church culture. Dying to self, it's that first ingredient where we say no to sinful wants and temptations and yes to God's will, especially in times when that means they're suffering because of righteousness' sake. And we can be assured that even in those moments, it is God's will because it's for righteousness' sake. And so we resist and cease trying to find a way out of it. Instead, we endure it faithfully. We humbly submit to God's will and live for him even while we die to ourselves. That won't happen if you're not rooting all of your thinking in Christ's suffering. That's why this take-home truth and its wording is so important. That kind of mindset 
is rooted and founded and grounded upon Christ's suffering. This is what he taught. This is what he did. And so as his followers, we follow suit. So I've only given you the first ingredient, which is dying to self. It's the first element of this mindset. But can we together just rehearse the overall point of the six verses? We've only seen the first two today. But can we just at least agree, okay, this is where where we've kind of taken off, is where we're headed. And can we just kind of bear up under this weight together for a minute? Together, will you read with me, church? Christ's suffering leads to a whole new mindset required for our suffering, which is equivalent to living for the will of God. And so that mindset, the first element, three words, what are they? Dying to self. Now, as I ruminated on that whole idea of dying to self being the first ingredient in this whole new mindset that is rooted in Christ's suffering, I just had a a wide range of applicational thoughts for my life. I even tried to write them down and word them, and I, I found it futile to try to express to you all that was in my heart in regards to dying to self because I'm so weak at it. I find it extremely difficult. I don't think I'm alone in that. I I think it means that we have to balance holding things closely and also holding them loosely. That's hard. Like sometimes it's inanimate things and it's not quite as difficult like methods, technology, ways of doing things. That's inanimate things. And, and so you can adjust that, but can you just admit with me, sometimes you get tied to the way you do things. And the church said, yeah, amen, right? <laughs> just ask someone newly married. <laughs> we get tied to the way we've done things for years and, and, and to loosen your grip from that to say, yeah, there, we can try something new. Or we, that's hard to put aside what you actually may want Sometimes Satan will use even good things and try to turn them into little g God things. And so you find yourself suddenly turning something that's actually not a bad thing into an idol. Because you've just done it a certain way so long. And so it's hard, even with inanimate things, to hold them closely and yet usually. And I think this is especially hard with, with humans. Things that aren't inanimate, but are life-breathing and giving to hold them closely and yet to know that they are instruments for God's will like your children you want to hold them closely don't you but guess what hold them loosely and can your children become an idol yeah they can and you'll find yourself clinging to something and it can get in the way of your own spiritual growth and even perhaps of God's will because you don't want to think about what it could be like if you released your grip on your kids. So can I just say to you, I, I think this whole idea of dying to self has brought to my mind this idea, like I think I have to learn how to hold some things closely while at the same time holding them loosely. And I'm not real good at that. Like, like balancing is not like a trait of mine very well, okay? I, I think it also means we have to learn to have two words in our head, like conflict and comfort. This was brought to mind last week during our um, worship time musically. I was just standing there with Julie, and um, 
as we were singing that song, This We Know, there's a bridge and the lines are this, we trust you, we trust you. It's a declaration from the church corporately. We're exhorting each other to trust the Lord when we don't understand what's going on. And the next line says, your ways are not our own. They're, they're higher. It's a, it's a quotation right from Scripture. You were singing last week, and you know that. And I'm singing this. We trust you. We trust you. Your ways are higher than our own. And, and the Holy Spirit of God just said to me in these words, there's your conflict and there's your comfort. And I've been treasuring that moment all week because I admit it, said, God, you're right. That's a conflict for me that I don't quite understand all the things you're doing. That's a conflict. But that's also the comfort because I know God is always good and right and just and faithful and true and holy. He's always all of those things and more. He's not just one at a time. It's the doctrine of simplicity. God is all of those things all of the time. And so because I know that, I'm comforted even when I'm conflicted. Like, I don't get this thing going on. But I know God. And so I trust you. I think that's part of dying to self. Because we trust, then we'll say no to our selfish desires and temptations to kind of get out of difficult things. And instead, we'll endure them and know we're living for the will of God. I think it brought new understanding to the idea of hating your father and your mother, your sister and your brother. You know, that's the odd essence of discipleship. You know that, right? I mean, I'm not making those words up. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. And he must love me more than his family. In fact, Jesus even said, you must hate your mother, your father and your brother and your sister. So again, was Jesus, uh, you know, promoting family hatred? No, not in that sense. Come on, right? We're, we're not going to say that Jesus said something he never said. Jesus here again, he's using this device of comparison to say that you must treasure me to the degree that when you line it up beside your love for your family, it makes your love for family look really small. Like, like there's... There's no place you wouldn't go, no thing you wouldn't do for my will as my disciple. You love me that much. You treasure me above all else. I'm the supreme treasure of your life. Like when you look at that, then, oh, I do love my family, yes. But, but compared to my love for Jesus, it seems rather insignificant now. And that, again, that's hard to hear, isn't it? And often those don't come in conflict. It's not an everyday thing that those are combative. But Jesus is saying, if you want to follow him, his will must be more important than your way. And my sense is that we often don't know if we're living that way until it gets difficult, i.e. suffering. And in that moment, Instead of following your selfish desires or passions or lust to get out of a difficult situation, Peter here says, remember Christ's sufferings and arm yourselves with this way of thinking. 
that dying to self is the first ingredient in living for the will of God. And to count his will as of far greater value than your way. We've seen Peter write this. We've seen Jesus live it. We've heard Paul echo it. Let me finish with a more near example. Those are all first century, right? Fast forward 17 or so centuries. The year's 1813. Adoniram Judson lands in Burma. It's now modern-day Myanmar. An incredible amount of political turmoil, social unrest. It's a country in a human mess. More so in 1813. He landed there, and for the next 38 years, Adoniram Judson served the mission of God. He came home once. After 33 years, he made a trip back to America. He was going to come home after 38 years, and on his last voyage, he died en route to the States. He landed there when he was 24 with a wife. He buried two wives on the field, as well as seven children. The first three to his first wife, three more from his second wife, and then one from his third wife. In fact, his third child died after his third wife found out that he had died on his voyage back to America because he was so sick. If there is a missionary who knows death up close and personal, it's Adoniram Judson. In addition to that, he experienced imprisonment, torture, long bouts with satanic attacks and demonic oppression. It was six years before there was ever one baptism. When Adoniram Judson asked to marry his first wife, he wrote her father a letter and said in the letter, you'll probably never see your daughter again. We often hear about Adoniram Judson's great courage. I think there was great courage with that father because he said yes. Somewhere in that story, there is this group of people Adoniram, his wives, his children, parents, who said yes to God's will before they said yes to their way. And it had to be indescribably difficult. But why could they make those choices? Why could they, watch this, why could they die in that way, both spiritually and for some physically? Why could they die to self in that way? because they held God's will uh, at such a prioritized level that nothing was more important than that. And if it included suffering, hardship, persecution, malignment, better to be in God's will enduring that than to get out of that to seek your own way and be out of God's will. And so they chose to die to self and for some of them to even die so there could be more fruit later. If you were to go to Myanmar today, you'd find there are the greatest Christian witness 
in that country is the Burma Baptist Convention, the BBC. 3,700 congregations, over 600,000 regenerate members, and at the turn of the century, just under 2 million affiliates. And what did it take? It took a man and his wife and their family and their parents. It took a group saying, we will die to self for the will of God. You see, that's the question I think all of us are answering this morning. And you need to wrestle with. This is why it's heavy. Because this is a question you can't answer lightly. But you have to answer, and that's this. How do you want to die? Because John Piper's right. We will all die. But will your death bring fruit? Will you pray with me? Lord, I speak this morning as one so far from this that I'm almost at times hesitant to preach this text. I want to and I'm trying to arm myself with this way of thinking, but Lord, in all honesty, and you know my heart, we have nothing we want to hide from you. This is a task that is so hard. It's actually impossible apart from your Holy Spirit. So God, we need your Spirit to help us think rightly about suffering and to realize the first ingredient in that thinking is a willingness to die to self. And Lord, I don't think I'm the only one who feels a million miles from that in this room. So God, by your grace and by your spirit, move among us this morning in ways that cannot be described or even comprehended. Oh, Holy Spirit, breathe and blow upon us. Loosen grips. Change perspectives. Change loves. Deepen vertical affections. Widen faith. And may all of that happen because this is what Jesus did. He died to self. He did not sin by seeking a way out. But as the sinless, perfect son of God, he sacrificed and died in accordance with your will so that we could have eternal life. 